Hi there and welcome to Question Period on this Sunday, January 8th. Today, an exclusive interview with Canada's former finance minister. I think it was pretty inevitable that, uh, that five years for me was a great run, um, but it was time to move on. And he's spilling the tea on his relationship with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, why it broke down, and why he left a job he says he loved. Hear from Bill Morneau in moments. And the debut of our Sunday strategy session with Corey Tonight, Kathleen Monk, and Scott Reed. They're standing by to react to what Morneau tells us. Then, the Prime Minister heads to Mexico this week for the North American Leaders Summit. A tete-a-tete with U.S. President Joe Biden is on the agenda. I think we have to be aware of what's happening down here. We'll ask Canada's ambassador to the U.S. what the Prime Minister wants out of that meeting just ahead. First, though, let me take a beat to introduce myself. I'm Vashi Capellos, and I am honoured to be sitting in this chair today and each Sunday going forward. I grew up watching and loving this show. I know I'm stepping into some big shoes, great Canadian journalists like Pamela Wallen, Craig Oliver, Bob Fife, and of course, Evan Solomon, people I respect and admire. You have my word. I'll work as hard as I can to live up to the example they've set. So let's get started because we have a great program for you today. Up first, our exclusive interview with Bill Morneau. Canada's former finance minister has a new book coming out January 17th, and it's called Where To From Here? A Path to Canadian Prosperity. Just over two years ago, Morneau resigned following leaks to the press that he and the prime minister were at odds. At the time, Morneau said he was leaving to make a bid to lead the OECD, an international organization. This book, though tells a different story. You start this book off uh, in chapter one called Conversation in an Empty Room. You're referencing the conversation that you had with the Prime Minister when you told him you would be leaving your position as Finance Minister. It's not something that you've talked much about before this book. Uh, you write that uh, I was walking away from a job I had loved and, and of course you're referencing all those leaks. It followed basically a number of leaks suspected, you know, from the Prime Minister's office to a number of media outlets that described, you know, a relationship between the two of you fraught with tension and that the clashes over COVID policy had just become too great, essentially. The truth was, you write, though, that there were differences, but they would have been reconciled or should have been. Why weren't they? Well, let me start by saying congratulations on your new show. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) It's really fun to be your first guest. Uh, It's been a long time, so I'm happy to be here. Uh, you know, thinking back, it's natural that there's tension between a finance minister and a prime minister. In fact, there should be. I mean, there really needs to be that tension. And with us, there was a healthy tension during the entire time that we were in office together. Uh, I think what happened during COVID was, you know, it was an intense pressure cooker of an environment. We came to very much the consensus early on that we need to support people and do it in a, in a really significant way. And then as we moved farther along in COVID, you know, myself and the Department of Finance were thinking about, you know, how do we move out of this? How do we taper the support? And I think the natural tension there was the Prime Minister and his office were much more focused on, you know, how do they give confidence to Canadians? So that was quite a difference of opinion and uh, really led to a situation where the sustainability of our relationship was, was not there. And so we got to some tough moments and that was the challenge. When you reference those tough moments, and I'll get into some of the more specifics about how you describe them, how far was the gulf during COVID between you and the Prime Minister? 
I think in the early days, we were very aligned. We realized we needed to massively support people. They were off work. They didn't have access to you know, day-to-day -day money to support their, their families. And then as we got farther along in COVID, what we were really trying to do with the Department of Finance was think about how do we taper these benefits? How do we, how do we make sure that we come out of this supporting the right people, but taper it in a way that ensures that our economy can remain strong? So, so we diverged as we got farther along, and, and that, that tension, you know, at the end of the day, the Prime Minister is in charge, not the Finance Minister. So that tension led to some pretty big challenges. And those challenges you get more specific on, on during the book. Uh, on page 241, you describe discussions about the business subsidy and how uh, you had presented a whole package of research done by yourself and your department, and you had the feeling that there was an agreement made, and then the next morning an announcement was made that didn't align in any way with what you thought had been agreed to. You called it one of the worst moments of my political life. Mm -hmm. Describe that for us, that moment for us in more detail if you could. Well, first of all, I'm impressed that you read to page 241. <laughs> I went all the way to the That's end. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, my goal all the way through my time in office was really how do we deal with the economy that's going to create long-term advantage for the country, so opportunities for future. And so being fiscally prudent was always a big part of what I wanted to, what I wanted to ensure we were doing as, as Minister of Finance. So I think in a moment where I saw us taking decisions that were were more significant than I thought we needed, you know, it was, it was you know, frankly extremely frustrating. And so it's not, a, it's not a new thing between finance ministers and prime ministers that there's tension. And five years working together is a pretty long time. But I think in that moment, you know, it started to sow the seeds of, of a challenge that we just weren't going to be able to overcome. Do you think you would have resigned even without those leaks? I think that what we saw was that it became unsustainable. So the, the differences of opinion... Uh, they led us to, to have conclusions around whether we could work together that were mutual. And so whether it was about leaks or whether it was about that uh, difference in vision, I think it was pretty inevitable that, uh, that five years for me was a great run, um, but it was time to move on. When you talk about those tensions, though, and I just want to make sure we sort of describe how you describe them in, in the book adequately, because... If they reach a point where you no longer feel you can occupy that position or you no longer want to work with the prime minister, they're not minimal, right? right. Uh, it, the way that you describe, for example, the difference in your approach and the prime minister's during the pandemic, we lost the agenda. During the period when the largest government expenditures as a portion of GDP were made in the shortest time since the advent of World War II, calculations and recommendations from the Ministry of Finance were basically disregarded in favor of winning a popularity contest. That's a pretty big deal. Your, your view was that the finance ministers and the finance department's recommendations on fiscal policies were disregarded because of what? How, uh, you know, because of what? What do you think? Well, I think what happened was, to be fair to both sides, what the prime minister and his team were trying to do appropriately is ensure that Canadians had confidence that they could deal with an enormous challenge. And we shared that goal. But this secondary goal for the Department of Finance was to make sure that as we gave that massive support that we reduced it at a time that made sense. So, so the timing and the scale of the support, we had a difference of opinion. You talk about them wanting to um, inspire confidence, and I understand that perspective. It was a time when 
many Canadians were worried about the fact that they might not have a job or that they, you know, about their health or their ability to work. But you don't just describe it as that in, in the book, right? You, you describe, in, and in that last sentence, you know, winning a popularity contest. In your view, is the Prime Minister too focused on how the public perceives what he and his government do? I think one of the important threads of my book, and, and I hope people will read it, and I hope this, this will help people to, to pick it up, is that the challenge of our modern-day government is the 24-7 news cycle is something that people have an incentive to react to. They want to react to that. And when you do that, your ability to focus on the long term, your ability to focus on growth of the economy, your ability to focus on the energy transition, your ability to focus on not just a one-year solution for health care but an enduring solution for a generation is challenged. Because if you're just dealing with the 24-7 news cycle, you don't make those long-term decisions that are going to be really good for this generation and the next generations. So that's really a key thread in the book. It's nothing different than what I would have said when I was around the table for five years. We need to be thinking about those long-term, really important issues. And if we don't put the growth in the economy at the front, we won't have the ability to sustain the great social programs that we have. A country that has so much, has so much advantage, is only going to be that if we continue to have a strong and growing economy. So, so that, to me, is, is the issue. And, and it's not... It's not this government, it's every government that will be faced with the challenge of the 24-7 news cycle, the immense challenge of dealing with social media that, that makes things uh, that much more urgent. And, and I certainly did uh, get that from the book, and I have more questions about the kind of greater economic vision in a second. But I, I know you're saying it's not just this government, it's other governments, but, but you are critical of this government in the book, very specifically so. And so I, I do want to ask you bluntly, do you think the Prime Minister is an effective manager of the economy? I think that this government has uh, rightly uh, focused on the challenge that we have in terms of Canadians all feeling like they can face up to their, their individual economic challenges. Things like the Canada Child Benefit were critically important for a, a really significant number of Canadians in, in feeling confident that they can raise their kids. The work that I did on expanding the Canada Pension Plan is going to be very important for the long term. But I think being an effective manager of the economy means going past those immediate things and thinking about the long term. So doing that requires strong relationships with the provinces, and it requires a strong and positive, sometimes challenging, but positive relationship with the private sector, because that is where growth is going to come from. That's where investment is going to come from. So I think for this government to be more effective, and everyone can always do better, more effective in managing the economy, it's about engaging with the provinces to make sure that we create those opportunities across the country. It's about engaging with the private sector and thinking about how working together creates a better business environment. I tried to do that while I was there. It was a, a, an ongoing challenge. And I think that is uh, for sure a, a very important challenge for this government, especially today. I, I take your point in all of that, but I'm going to repeat the question because it, it wasn't a specific answer. Do you think the Prime Minister is an effective manager of the economy? Well, as I said, I think everyone can do better. And I think that the possibilities here are about creating a better and more uh, sustained uh, environment for business investment. And I think that that... That is a challenge that uh, the government needs to focus on. Reading through your book, the impression I'm left with, though, is that you don't think that's happening. 
I think that we right now have um, a very big challenge. We have too, uh, too little business investment in this country. We have uh, a sense that uh, some of the regulations that have been put in place are challenging for businesses to work with. Um, I don't necessarily agree with all of that discussion, but I think there's a tone and tenor that is accurate, that there is not enough dialogue between the government and the private sector, and that could improve our outcomes dramatically. So, so I look, I, I think we could have done better while I was there. I think that the government can do better now, and I think being an effective uh, manager means focusing on a few things that are critically important and doing them every day. The challenge of the 24-7 news cycle response is that that takes your eye off the ball. And so for me, growth in the economy, long-term solution to a healthcare crisis that is, it continues to repeat itself, not just a one-year solution, and thinking about that energy transition, they all need that perspective. What could you have done better? As you mentioned, there are things during your time and things after as you reflect on it. I think a lot of our viewers will be familiar with watching you for those five years and the degree to which you defended the government against a lot of the criticism you now levy in this book. You paint yourself as, for example, more fiscally prudent than your colleagues and in particular people in the prime minister's office and the prime minister himself. Why didn't we have that impression when you were finance minister? And what do you regret? So does Bill Morneau have regrets? Listen to his answer to that question after a quick break. Welcome back. Former finance minister Bill Morneau spends a good chunk of his new book, Where To From Here? A Path to Canadian Prosperity, telling Canadians how he thinks the Prime Minister mismanaged things. But what about his own regrets? That's where we left things off before the break, and here's Morneau's answer in part two of our exclusive interview. Well, before I talk about what I regret, there's a lot of things that I think this government has done right. I think that the... I, I identified some of them. I think things like the Canada Child Benefit were, were really, really important. I think, you know, dealing with NAFTA, that was a really important... Uh, decision that the Prime Minister and his team had, which was to focus every day on that issue while we were going through it. So, very positive. And I think I need to be really clear, the response to COVID, the initial response, I think was the right response. So I think there's lots that was done right. Uh, now that said, I do think that the tone and tenor in dealing with the private sector can be improved. I think the some of the programs that we, we wanted to put in place to encourage investment, we didn't follow through on as well as we could have. I have to ask you also from a personal perspective where regret is concerned. Uh, the, the whole issue, you know, the ethics issue. I know in so much of this book you're kind of delineating yourself from the Prime Minister, but for some Canadians, you, they shared a view that both you and the Prime Minister were kind of out of touch with regular Canadians. And part of that had to do with some of these accusations of ethics impropriety, and then ultimately where we is concerned, a finding by the Ethics Commissioner uh, that you were in contravention of the Ethics, the Conflict of Interest Act, rather. And, and more specifically, not that you, you know, it was a potential conflict of interest, not that you furthered your own interests, but that you had a friendship with the founders of WE, uh, that, that ultimately, because you were involved in all of what happened, to some degree or another, uh, could have resulted in furthering their interests. I know that you talk a bit about it in the book, um, and that you say you uh, should have recused yourself. Do you regret that you didn't? Are you sorry that you didn't? Because you don't say that. 
Well, first of all, it's important to have context. So, you know, this was going on when we were working 24-7 in COVID, trying to figure out how we could support Canadians. And so one of the really important things we saw as a challenge was supporting students. So that was the decision that was going on. How do we support students? And for sure, I should have recused myself. I mean, in the decision around we, I'm clear, I was clear then, I was cl I'm clear in the book, that that decision when it came to cabinet, I should have stepped out of the room. The reality was that we were working fast on trying to do the right thing. I think we were trying to figure out a way to get money into students' hands. So am I sorry that I didn't walk out of the room? Of course. I wish I'd, I'd done differently then. But that said, I think that what's really important around broader ethics issues is you know, recognizing that when you're in public life, you have, you have a responsibility, you have a, a position of real opportunity to have an impact, but it's also a position of privilege. So I think, I think it is important to think about your actions carefully. Uh, mistakes will be made. When you make a mistake, admit it. And uh, you know, that's, that's what I would say is, is how I address this issue. I think importantly going forward, people need to be careful and recognize that confidence of Canadians will be, will be enhanced if people take responsibility for their actions. Do you wish, and acknowledging the context around COVID and how fast things were moving, do you wish um, you, you had been more careful? I, I don't know that I see, uh, I see it as, as something other than I, I should have made a decision that I didn't at a particular moment in time uh, because I wasn't involved in the in the scrutiny of who was going to do what program, I was very much engaged on setting up the, you know, the SERB benefit and setting up the benefit for the wage subsidies. So there were a lot of things going on, uh, but we can always do better. And I think it's important to remember that um, in government, uh, that responsibility is, is an, uh, you know, an enduring responsibility. Uh, you served in the portfolio for five years, pretty long compared to a number of other finance ministers. So I think it's incumbent to, to ask you about the current economic situation this country faces, and in particular something I know a lot of Canadians are worried about. Do you think there will be a recession this year? I think the challenge that we're facing now is, is obviously significant. You know, the, the only uh, appropriate response for the central bank is to, is to deal with the level of inflation. Inflation is hugely problematic for, for people to deal with. And so when you raise interest rates, inevitably there's less investment. So uh, I do worry about the potential for an, a recession in 2023. My hope is that if we have one, it will be a shallow recession and one that we'll be able to come out of. But I, I do think there's a, it's important for us to, to uh, recognize that in managing the economy, that is a likely, uh, or at least a high potential outcome. And it means, you know, the message around fiscal prudence is doubly important. We really need to make sure that we're not adding to the challenge uh, with government actions. Was there too much stimulus in the, in the economy? Did the government spend too much during COVID? Well, I think if you look around the world, what you would say is that uh, generally there, was, there were some countries that did particularly well in, in supporting their, their citizens, and I think Canada was one of them. Uh, so I think you have to start with that perspective. The 30,000-foot the view is we, we did a good job in supporting Canadians. Was there too much? You know, probably, but uh, getting it exactly right, that's tough. So I think now that we have the benefit of seeing you know, what transpired, I think we need to be 
very cautious given that we know that the economic environment that we're facing is challenging. You also write extensively about the significance of the role of the provinces and the relationship between the feds and the provinces in fostering uh, you know, economic growth in navigating what could be a recession this year. Th that relationship is at a boiling point right now. You don't advocate for writing a blank check in this book, but should the Prime Minister be meeting with premiers on the issue? Well, in my view, and I'm pretty clear in the book, the relationship with provinces for Canada and, and you know, the federal government and the provinces is job one. So it's both directions. I think working on that relationship is critically important. The example from the book is when we expanded the Canada Pension Plan. I mean, we, by definition, this is something that people don't pay day-to-day -day attention to. It's not, it doesn't get you many political votes because people aren't thinking 20 years in the future. Yet we got all the provinces to work together to consider how we could enhance pensions for Canadians long down the road. And we did that even though not all provinces were on board. And in fact, at least one, Saskatchewan, was absolutely not on board. But we worked with them to find a way to get them willingly to come on board. So, so I think there is the potential for working with the provinces. It requires diligent work. Nothing happens in relationships without meeting together. That theme of relationships and the significance of them in politics, in government, echoes throughout the entire book. Is your relationship with politics done? Or have, would you entertain uh, a, a return to it? Well, let me just say, I really enjoyed my time in office. I mean, it's exciting to be at the center of, of what's going on in the country. But more importantly, it's really uh, meaningful to be able to have a big impact on the country. So I, I very much enjoyed the time doing that. I think that right now the things that I can do, I think I can add more value outside of that life. I mean, I think by advocating for pro-growth policies, by advocating for a an energy transition that recognizes Canada's great strengths, but that we also need to figure out a way to decarbonize by advocating in things like what I'm doing with you today. So I think that's an important role that I can play. And for me, you know, at this stage of my life, I think that that's, I hope, a place where I can continue to have impact. So is that a never or just a not now? Well, politics is all about timing. And I think the timing for me now is to be back in the private sector to find a way to make an impact there. Okay, Mr. Morneau, I'll leave it there. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Coming up, the inaugural Sunday strategy session. We'll dig into the interview you just heard. Kathleen Monk, Scott Reed, and Corey Tonight are here. Don't go anywhere. We're back with more on our exclusive look at former finance minister Bill Morneau's book and what's in it. Will the revelations damage the government and what might Morneau have to gain writing this book now more than two years after his high profile resignation? With me to unpack all of it on our first ever Sunday strategy session, three of Canada's best political strategists, former NDP strategist and director of communications to the late Jack Layton, Kathleen Monk is here, Corey Tonike, Ontario Premier Doug Ford's campaign manager and former director of communications for the Prime Minister's office under Stephen Harper, and Scott Reid, a CTV News political analyst and former communications director to Prime Minister Paul Martin. Hi, everybody. Great Hi. to see you on this Hi. day. I really appreciate you making the time. Uh, Kathleen, I'm going to start with you. This book is interesting in a whole host of ways. I think when I, when I read through it, the thesis I left with, or Bill Morneau's thesis I left with was, 
that this government, and particularly the Prime Minister's office, is obsessed with how things land at the expense of good policy. Yep. Do you think that's a fair criticism? I think it's a fair criticism, and I think actually it was one of the most compelling parts of your interview with him, and, and the book, that I haven't seen the entire book, but the fact that he is pushing politicians to move beyond the 24-hour you know, news cycle, and actually to look long-term, to focus on the big things, whether it's climate change or homelessness or energy transition, that actually shows him in a good light. But it's not surprising, because often when people write a political memoir like this, they're looking to do one of two things. They either want to clear the air and, and outline what, what their past work was in government, or they want to set themselves up for future political ambition. I don't think he's going for the latter. I don't think he's looking to run. This is Didn't not a book like in the era of like a Jean Chrétien kind of setup book. It's more of a book in the line of Paul Martin did, Hell or High Water, where he was trying to clear the air and kind of set the st straight the political record so his legacy is set in stone. Scott, you work for Paul Martin. Did this? Did, do you have the sense that this is about clearing the air? No. I think there's a third kind of political biography, and that's score settling. And that's a, that appears to be what this is, or at least it's trying to inch toward it. The fact that it's not obvious, though, um, from my perspective, is kind of the big takeaway, which is I'm not crystal clear on what Bill Marno is trying to say or, or why he's trying to say it. Um, you know, it's not clear if he's saying, listen, I have fundamental policy breach with the prime minister. Well, if that were true, that's not why he left politics. He, he left politics under the shadow of scandal, if we want to be honest about it, right? I mean, it, he, he didn't stand up like John Turner in 1975 and, and resign as finance minister on a breach of policy principle. Um, if it's about politics, he dances around his differences with the prime minister. You asked him a couple of times, really directly, hey, are you saying that the prime minister is a poor economic manager and can't be trusted with the, the economic levers of the state? And he, he, he ducked that question. Wanted to leave the impression that he agreed with that, but wasn't willing to say it. So it's a little bit like his time as finance minister, to be honest. It's kind of poorly communicated, convoluted, and, and not particularly remarkable. Well, it's interesting, uh, Corey, because I, I want to read a part of, it sort of speaks to what Scott's saying. Um, in like why, why did he resign in the first place and and so much of what he criticizes about the government is certainly what he stood for in in the five years I remember interviewing him many times as finance minister he basically says by the end of it during COVID my job of providing counsel and direction where fiscal matters were concerned had deteriorated into serving as something between a figurehead and a rubber stamp that's not why I wanted the position of finance minister and it's not why it was created in the first place yeah, I, I think the whole thing reads like sour grapes. I, I, I you know, and, and his his reason for leaving sounds so much better than getting caught up in the wee scandal, uh, which I think is probably a, a more direct contributor. Uh, look, my my impression of, B of Bill Morneau is he was never very good at politics, and uh, and what distinguishes him from. Uh, you know, Paul Martin or uh, Jim Flaherty or other finance ministers that uh, Canadians might be able to name mm -hmm. uh, is that he doesn't really have a political background. He was, he, he was a total rookie when he came into the role. Uh, and I think the gap is not about a change in politics, uh, but rather a change in the perception that Bill Morneau had as to what the role is and how it works. Politics is a, a team sport. Cabinet is a team activity, and uh, and how things are perceived politically is a part not just of this government but of every government. And I think there's always a struggle to try to find good policy and good communications, and that's mm -hmm. there's nothing new about that. 
Um, you know, I, I just think it's, uh, this will be a, 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 a lightly read uh, political biography from a very minor marginal figure in politics in Canada. It is totally true that when you compare the two big bios on the shelves these days, Prince Harry's, you know, spare. Uh, <laughs> versus my next guest next with, week. Yeah, but yeah. Bill Murnau's, I mean, Bill Murnau's book will be deeply read by people in 500 meters of Wellington and Parliament, and that's probably about it. But there are some interesting lessons, I think, still in there. You know, he talks about the, the confusion and the hindsight in 2020 of, you know, maybe they did too much, but who knew at the time? If we scroll back to to early 2020, it was the pandemic was evolving. We didn't know the science, and we didn't know what the right fiscal measures were at the time. So he mentions that, and and part of the thing, uh, despite his kind of pullback and saying the government should have spent less, and I'm sure conservatives will jump on that in terms of their accusation of, of uh, the PMO. He also points to a lot of measures that were done by this government, whether it's the CCB, the child benefit, or, or others, like the expansion of the Canadian pension plan is really good policies. Yeah, and he, he does, to be fair to him and to the book, he does, uh, Scott, spend uh, a, a, you know, a chunk of time talking about the things that he thought the government did well. Um, as far as his own, I, I thought it was interesting, you, you all kind of touched on, well, this is the way things work. He, he talks a lot in the book about going in and trying to be going in with open eyes and understanding that there is going to be friction in the relationship. He talked to Paul Martin about that. He talked to Michael Wilson about that. But he just basically comes to the conclusion that it's too much friction, that, that mm -hmm. it's, it's not just like a healthy kind of back and forth, but an unhealthy amount of it. And he even describes that, that day when he went in to tell the prime minister he was leaving. It was one of the few, the very few times we had met to discuss matters in private without the presence of advisors or other sources of counsel. That kind of thing simply didn't happen in Justin Trudeau's world. What do you make of that, Scott? Yeah, I, I think you would hear that broadly, that you know Trudeau's team is around him constantly. Um, that's not super strange. Um, you know, uh, that's not that atypical. I think uh, I would say that. I think Corey would say that based on our experiences in the prime minister's office. But I'll, I'll return to something Corey said. I mean, I, you know, Bill Morneau registers this, this complaint as though that's the fundamental breach. And so, he, again, he doesn't directly come out and say it, but he implies that he has objections, therefore, that the, the tension became unhealthy. But I never saw that. I never saw Bill Morneau as finance minister um, resisting any policy impulses. And if his, if his big example is going to be the response to COVID, well, let's face it, the initial response on the wage subsidy from finance and from Bill Morneau was utterly lacking. So if he wants to make the point that, look, you got to take the advice of your finance minister, prime minister, well, the advice needs to be sound. And they miscalculated the scale and the scope of what was required. And thank goodness the prime minister's office or whomever, PCO, whoever was responsible, rewrote those measures 10 days later because they were not, an they were not adequate to the challenge. So whether it's about politics or whether it's about policy, I'm not certain that he makes a strong argument for himself. Corey, I've got 30 seconds left. Last word to you. Well, my, my, I'll, I'll come back to where I started. Like, I, I just don't think he was a very good finance minister. Uh, I think he has a fundamental misunderstanding of politics and government and how it works and what those interactions are and where he's derived them from. Who knows? Uh, you know, maybe uh, examples in a distant history or, or perceived uh, un, a perceived understanding of government. But, you know, I, I think he was a weak finance minister. I think he was a minor player in this town as compared to other finance ministers in the, in the past. Uh, and, uh, you know, the product of his time is a, a somewhat whine, whiny and vindictive biography uh, that will be lightly read.
Tell me what you really think. <laughs> okay, I gotta leave it there. Thank you very much to all three of you, Scott Reed, Corey Tonight, and Kathleen Monk. Really appreciate it. Coming up here on Question Period, next week, the Prime Minister will meet with President Joe Biden. We'll speak to Canada's ambassador to the U.S., Kirsten Hillman, coming up in a minute. Looking ahead now to the week to come, the Prime Minister is headed to Mexico City to meet with his Mexican and American counterparts. Canada's ambassador to the U.S., Kirsten Hillman, will be at those meetings, and she's with us now. Hi, Ambassador Hellman. Good to see you. Hi, Vashi. Uh, I'm happy to be on your new show. Oh, thank you very much, and thanks for making the time. Okay, on the substance of the meeting, Ambassador, uh, and in particular the meeting that will take place, the bilateral meeting between Canada and the U.S., the Prime Minister and the President, the President rather, what is Canada's primary objective in that meeting? Well, I mean, I think we have a, a few objectives. Uh, one, the Prime Minister and the President are going to want to talk about the North American uh, environment, the NALS meeting, what they're seeking to achieve there. That's why they're there as, a, as, a, as the three leaders to talk about our ecosystem in North America, which is, which is good. Uh, we are two years out after the renegotiation of the NAFTA and we have record levels of trade in Canada, U.S. and Mexico, which is a very good news. Um, but we have to make sure that we continue to build on that. So there's going to be an important economic conversation there. Okay, I want to zero in on the economic portion of that agenda. And in particular, when you talk about uh, the environment between the U.S. and uh, Canada. And, and I would like to zero in on the Inflation Reduction Act, which uh, kind of altered that environment to, to a certain degree, uh, especially when it comes to the subsidies uh, that are basically going to be in place to help out manufacturers of EV, electric vehicle batteries. It's a massive subsidy. I was speaking to somebody in the industry today who described it as a complete game changer. I know that the Prime Minister uh, has talked about remaining competitive. Does that mean Canada is willing to match what the U.S. is doing? Well, I think that that's a question probably for uh, the Prime Minister and the Finance Minister. What I do know, here's, I think there's a few things I would say on that. One is the Inflation Reduction Act and the investments that it's making in green technology are important. And they, they are similar to investments that we've been making, issues we've been focusing on in Canada for, for a number of years now. Um, and the government has committed to remaining competitive. Um, remaining competitive is working. Because last year we had $15 billion, $15 billion worth of investment in Canada in the area of battery technology, electric vehicle manufacturing, and critical mineral exploitation and, and processing. So we are doing very well in that space. But we can never be complacent. Respectfully, Ambassador, I, I do have to challenge some of that answer in, in, in this vein. So I understand that there was a substantial amount of investment in those areas in Canada last year, but that was the majority of it prior to the introduction of the IRA. And then now what's coming, the implementation, rather, of a lot of these subsidies. Yes, Canada did carve out an exemption, for sure. I, I understand that, and I'm not trying to take away from that. But when it comes to other portions of the subsidy, I mean... All I keep hearing, uh, and not with no disrespect to you, but from other politicians too, is that Canada will remain competitive, but no specifics attached to it. Has the federal government, has the prime minister, has the finance minister communicated to you that Canada is in any, any way prepared to match the types of subsidies that the U.S. is putting forth? Because they are game changers. I think what's important is 
not necessarily doing exactly what the Americans do. They have their own domestic environment and they have their own um, ways in which they are attracting investment, their own value proposition, and we have ours. We have been investing in this space for a long time and we have an ecosystem that is already healthy in this space. The U.S., less so, right? Um, what we need to do is understand how best we can be working together to be doing as much as we can together. In my experience in the Canada-U.S. trade space, which is a space I've occupied for a long time, um, when the U.S. starts to focus on a particular area of industrial activity and a particular area of economic activity, we necessarily benefit from that because we are so deeply intertwined and we are so deeply um, in sync in terms of how our economies operate that some of that benefit will come to Canada. In this situation, I would say even more so for the reasons that I cited, which is the resources, the technology, the workforce, our ability to get workforce when we need it is a value proposition that we have that is sometimes, quite frankly, is better than can be available to investors here in the United States. So yes, this is a big country with a lot of money to invest and they are doing that, but that's a good thing for the environment. And overall, I think it's gonna be a good thing for us as we always work together um, with the Americans in these emerging areas. I, so just before I let you go, Ambassador, just to be clear though, uh, is the idea that Canada remains competitive just because of the competitive ad advantages that already exist? Or do you concede that given what the IRA entails, Canada will have to make adjustments? I'm not saying match it subsidy for subsidy, but do more than Canada is doing right, right now. I think we have to be aware of what's happening down here, right? And we have to understand its implications for the Canadian economy. And there are people who are experts in analyzing these things and adjusting our policies accordingly. Um, and I know that those, those are being watched. And there, were, you know, there was a, a fall economic update that, that started to look at some of these things. And it was the first step in looking at making sure that Canada remains competitive and that our value proposition remains strong. That is one portion of an entire suite of advantages that we have as a country. Um, but of course, responsible policymaking is, is making sure that we understand what the environment is for Canadians and Canadian investments and maximizing, you know, benefits uh, for us. Okay, Ambassador, I'll leave it there. Thanks very much for your time. Okay, thank you. Good to see you. Up next here on Question Period, we're going to delve a little deeper into that trip next week for the Prime Minister, in particular his meeting with U.S. President Joe Biden. The Scrum will be here, Joyce Napier, Bob Fife, and Rob Benzie. Welcome back to Question Period on this Sunday, January 8th. We were just speaking with Canada's ambassador to the U.S., Kirsten Hillman, about that big meeting between the Prime Minister and U.S. President Joe Biden next week. I want to dive deeper into that right now with the scrum. Joyce Napier is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for CTV News. Bob Fife is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail. And Robert Benzie is the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star. Hi, everybody. Great to have you Hi. here today. Joyce, I want to start with you. When you look ahead to this meeting, and I should say it's not just that, that's one meeting it's the bilateral meeting between the president and the prime minister there's also the president of mexico there it's it's a summit of the leaders of north america what are you watching for 
well, the three amigos. What, what I'm watching for is actually the, the bilateral meeting between Trudeau and uh, the president, something that Justin Trudeau has been wanting, um, you know, ever since uh, he was elected president of the United States, and it hasn't happened. He hasn't come to Canada. So this will be a very important face-to-face -face for them. Um, look, I'm, I'm, I'm expecting lots of smiles, you know, for the photo ops. That usually happens. But there's a lot of tension there. I mean, there's, there's little irritants. So I'm expecting that, you know, um, you know, Canada's, the Prime Minister's hanging by his supply and confidence agreement with right. the NDP. Like, there's, you know, a lot of instability. There's inflation. There's the cost of living. Uh, I'm, I'm expecting it to be a little bit tense. Rob, one of the big irritants, or I don't know if irritants is the right way to describe it, but the big kind of issues between our countries right now is that Inflation Reduction Act in, uh, in the United States and the consequences on this side of the border, especially where electric vehicles are concerned. We know that's going to be on the agenda, very high on the agenda. How much pressure is on Canada to try and match what the U.S. does to avoid kind of an exodus of investment? Well, there's a lot of pressure, Vashi. I mean, the, the, the electric vehicles uh, is a huge uh, um, industry here in Ontario. They're trying to make it even bigger. They're very, very concerned about protectionist policies, the Buy American policies that they have avoided in the past, but narrowly so. And it's taken a lot of lobbying from Prime Minister Trudeau, from premiers like Doug Ford here in Ontario and, and uh, former Premier uh, Jason Kenney in Alberta. They had to go to the United States to help lobby. Um, and it's, it's, not, it's not good for Canada when we get into kind of trade. Trade, trade wars with the United States. So I think this is something, that, to Joyce's point, that Trudeau has wanted this meeting with Joe Biden since Biden became president uh, in, in November 2020. So I think, or I guess technically in January 2021. But he, I mean, I think, I think it's, it's, it's taken too long, two years. Uh, and, and, and I think for the photo op, though, it's going to be good for Trudeau. If we're going into a, a political season here in Canada, Canadians follow American politics very closely. Pictures of Justin Trudeau with Joe Biden, the president of the United States, those look good if you're the Prime Minister of Canada. Yeah, and there have been other pictures. There, there have been some other meetings, but certainly in this context, we're, we're, yeah. we're looking ahead to this week. I do want to switch gears uh, because I also did an interview on today's program with former Finance Minister Bill Morneau. He's got this new book out. Here's the, the first early copy. I, I want to play a clip, Bob, and then get you to weigh in. And I'll set up the clip by saying, essentially, it, it's, the, it's what he says in the book about, you know, yes, there were leaks, but my resignation was ultimately inevitable. Have a listen to how he describes it. I think that what we saw was that it became unsustainable. So the, the differences of opinion, uh, they led us to, to have conclusions around whether we could work together that were mutual. And so whether it was about leaks or whether it was about that uh, difference in vision, I think it was pretty inevitable that, uh, that five years for me was a great run, um, but it was time to move on. So, Bob, as he was saying that, I'm thinking back two and a half, almost two and a half years ago when those leaks about this, there being this huge uh, level of tension between the two of them, the Prime Minister and, and Bill Morneau came out. You were the one getting leaked, too. You were the one writing it. Do you think it was inevitable that he quit, even without those leaks? Uh, no, of course not. Uh, the day when I wrote that story, his office was categorical that he is not leaving. He didn't want to leave, but the problem he had was one of two things, really. It was, there were policy disagreements, for sure. He wanted a 10% wage subsidy. Trudeau ended up overruling him for a 75% uh, subsidy. He wanted to have a one-year freeze on employment insurance benefits. 
uh, Mr. Trudeau overruled him. He had a two-year freeze. He brought in this legislation that was draconian that would allow unlimited tax and spending power for the finance department without parliamentary oversight. Trudeau had to overrule him, overrule him on that because of public backlash. But then there were the very serious ethical concerns here. He never declared uh, his French villa. He did not put his shares, in, family shares, in a blind trust, which he promised to do so. He, the whole cash for access uh, in, uh, problems that cost him and Mr. Trudeau problems. But the real thing, of course, was coming down the, the, the pipe was the ethics commissioner who was going to rule on the fact that this multimillionaire guy took free vacations from yeah. the WE charity, which was getting federal government money. So it became untenable for Trudeau to keep this guy in. And, and the other thing is, you know, he, Mr. Morneau is a, is a nice guy, but a, a very bad politician, yeah. <laughs> and he was a weak finance minister. He did not have his well, own power structure in the finance department, and he it was on good finance ministers are able to develop their own power center right. to be able to take on the prime minister and he was unwilling to do so. Yeah, our strategists were, were kind of alluding to the same thing, Joyce, mm -hmm. like that, that, that he, he just came in not a politician, right? Not well, a natural and, politician. And, and he left five years later not a politician, right? It was almost like he woke up and, you know, here he was a, a, a Bay Street boy with, you know, in, in, a, in a socialist scenario. Um, that's it, it. It was it was a, a clash, and I and think you can the see first, that clash. Yes, the absolutely. Thing, yeah. And you can, you know, when when you asked him twice, uh, you know, was is Trudeau a good manager of the economy? And and he doesn't want to answer. And clearly, the answer is no. Um, he makes some good points. He makes some good points about the private sector, about you know this government completely ignoring, practically ignoring the private sector. Uh, but you know, to uh, to Bob's points, there was political scandals at the time. Go back and look at the coverage. Uh, you know, he was walking the plank. Uh, he was the guy that was thrown under the bus, um, right? There was the 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 the, the we scandal was was still very hot. And, back uh, in the day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was back in the day, and you got to look back two and a half years, right? It was a different reality, and yeah. I think that he never got the po the, the politician thing. Uh, and, you know, he left, uh, yeah, he's just a, a bad politician and not such a great finance minister. I would say he doesn't call himself a bad politician in the book, but he does admit he doesn't come by it naturally. So, so that part was interesting to read as well. I'm, I'm going to leave it there. I'm out of time, unfortunately. Thank you all three Thank of you. you for your time. Great to have you here this Sunday. Rob Benzie, uh, Bob Fife, and Joyce Napier. Before we go today, three things I'll be watching for this week, and you'll want to as well. First, tomorrow, Parliament's Transport Committee gets together to decide how public hearings into the travel chaos during the holidays will unfold. Expect to hear from major airlines and via rail during those hearings. Second, I'll be watching for what comes out of the meeting between U.S. President Joe Biden and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. That'll take place this week in Mexico City. And finally, I'm only half embarrassed to admit it, but I'll be looking for Prince Harry's memoir, Spare, out this week. If the stuff out already is any indication, I'm probably going to have to read the book. That does do it, though, for us today. Thank you so much for watching. I'm Vashi Capellos. Have a great week, and I'll see you tomorrow on Power Play.